You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a journalist, author, broadcaster and editor of over 30 years, who became the first female graduate trainee at the Financial Times when she joined in 1989. This was after editing the student paper ISIS at Oxford University, where she read classics. It was at this magazine where she gave her then housemate, fellow Oxford undergrad Hugh Fernley Whittingstill, his first weekly food column, something she claims has greatly influenced his career. After a stint at the Financial Times, she moved to a year on secondment at the Foreign Office before going to the BBC for three years and then hopping across the pond to Washington, D.C. She went on to become the ninth editor of The Lady magazine in 2009, also writing weekly columns for The Sunday Times, The Mail on Sunday and She magazine. Her books range from Notting Hill Trilogy to The Mummy Diaries. Her latest, Rake's Progress, My Political Midlife Crisis, has been described as remarkable for its radical honesty about her own failings. It is in this book that she recalls a fierce childhood competition between her and her older brother, Boris Johnson, a trait which has continued throughout adulthood. My guest today is Rachel Johnson. And we should point out that we don't just have you today. You brought in another special guest, uh, Ziggy. Do you want to introduce us? Yes, Ziggy is my new love object and she's a seven-month-old cockapoo puppy. But we're calling her Pussycat because she's already lost at least two of her nine lives. Once when I ran her over during lockdown, or as I like to say it, she ran under the wheels of my car. And then last week, I took five days off and went to Greece and I left her in the care of my daughter in Marland. And I got a call saying that she'd sicked up a peach stone. Anyway, to cut a long story short, she didn't eat for 48 hours, was rushed to hospital. They discovered another peach stone in her lower intestine and has had a massive operation called an enterotomy. So she's here with me now because in theory she's supposed to be being very quiet. Now, on this podcast we like to begin by talking a little bit about your early life. Now, you did actually appear on, I would say, a, another Spectator podcast, or we could say a rival podcast, Table Talk, where you talked about your experience in childhood. So we're going to have to go a bit further on this one. <laughs> okay, I'm braced. So the question we asked a lot of people who come on this podcast is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? That is such a big and leading question. I'm going to sort of dodge it and say that... I love my parents deeply and I felt incredibly lucky to have such creative, original, dynamic parents. They had us in extremely young. I mean, they were, as I write in the American edition of Rake's Progress, they were babies when they had babies. And that sort of meant they were very much involved in their own lives. You know, now women have babies in their at 30 or 35 they're much more fully formed adults. Of course, my parents were adults when they had us, but my, you know, my father was 22 and my mother was 21. So they're younger than my children are now. I mean, my mother was a grandmother several times over by the time she was my age. So the answer to your question is, I had an extraordinary childhood. Looking back on it, would I define it as happy? I think, you know, the great cliche, which is you only know what you experience as a child applies and I wouldn't exchange my childhood I had for anything it definitely had its ups and downs and it had its hilarious wonderful moments but there were moments of deep anxiety 
as well as fear and all the rest of it because you know for the reasons you may want to ask me about which I may not want to answer now your father and I think it went on to run the family obviously had a career in politics as well so I wondered in, in terms of growing up was yours a childhood where politics wasn't discussed much you mentioned previously how you know your father was always instigating quizzes at the dinner table yes I mean traditionally for having family lunch or supper my father would wouldn't necessarily initiate conversation because his his mantra is never say anything to anyone because it obviously leads to trouble. So we would have quizzes, invariably won by my older brother Boris, who is known as Alexander in the family. Did you ever get close or what kind of topics are in these quizzes? Are they, oh, are they you general know, knowledge? Or general, definitely general knowledge, yeah. But it was also assumed that, you know, you were a Tory as well. Of course... My father has married twice and neither of his wives have ever, I think, voted Tory. So I, came, I like to say I came from a mixed race household because my mother's never voted Tory. And in fact, the village postmistress in Wentzford, Exmoor, would know that she was the only person who voted Labour in the village because when you handed in your ballot, she would open each one and put before she put it in the, in the box. So she knew my mother was a red under the bed. Now, you were sent to boarding school, I think I'm right in saying, at the age of 10. Correct, yeah. And were you one of only two girls at your prep school? Yes, I was. So were you quite used to that, given that you had, you know, brothers? I suppose it's strange, you can't compare an experience to something you haven't had, but what was it like? Well, I was sent to an all-boys boarding school at the age of 10 in another country. Why was that? Well, basically, I was at the European school in Brussels, and... Alexander Boris and Leo were also there and they called in my parents one day and they said after he'd been there a couple of terms and said we don't think your your son should remain at the European school and they said oh why and they were worried that he was going to be kicked out for sort of beating up the Danes we always had fights with the Danes never the Germans and they said well because he's due which means gifted and they didn't mention me at all so he was then sent off to this school called Ashdown House, which was a feeder for Eton. And my father was on the phone to the headmaster arranging this at sort of very short notice and said, well, there are three more after Alexander Boris, Alexander. And the headmaster was thrilled and said, great, great, Stanley, you know, send them over. And my father said, well, Rachel will then, Rachel will start in September. And then there was a long silence. And he said, well, we don't take girls, Stanley. And then my father said, well, you do now. And so I went in September and Harrods had to sort of knock up a bespoke uniform for my pudgy 10-year-old form. And it was a very odd experience. But again, you know, it was all I knew. And I was quite used to being with boys. At the time, did you look at other schools or did you have other female friends at schools which had a higher proportion of the female gender? I didn't. I never met a girl, really, until I went to Bryanston. (laughs) aged about 13 or 14. Now the stereotype is obviously all boys schools and probably you know it's very like boorish and then I suppose all girls schools can be a little bit bitchy mm. often girls sometimes have a higher proportion of you know eating disorders and things in, in heavily uh, private girls schools so did you notice any big differences like that or not really? I I didn't find any bitchiness at all. I was kicked out of Branston at O-levels which is why I find lockdown very difficult because I don't like rules and being told what to do, particularly by a member of male member of the family. And which rules did you break? Well at Branston. 
or in lockdown? Uh, we can go into both. We've got time on this podcast. No, it's up to you which one. Um, no, I'm very good during lockdown. <laughs> Just on lockdown, though, if everyone's breaking the rules, what's the point of the rules? Anyway, at Bryanston, I usually answer that question by just saying I was just terribly irritating. And I think they just got fed up. I mean, I did all the usual things like drinking and smoking and hitchhiking and being out at night, drinking and smoking. Now, I want to talk about university and then obviously career, but I just wondered, I mean, you have Turkish ancestry on your paternal side. So did you grow up with much in a way of a Turkish influence in terms of household food, culture? Absolutely none, because my grandfather, who was born Ali Kemal, became Wilfred Johnson as a boy and didn't like to be reminded of his Turkish heritage at all because Turkey was on the wrong side in the war. I remember after he died, I was given a silver very highly decorated tooled silver box and I was told it held the Quran it was a Quran box and I've still got it and it was given to him I think by his father and you know he was born a Muslim so I have Christian Jewish and Muslim grandparents which I'm very very proud of and actually my name completely reflects that because Rachel is Jewish Sabia means dawn in Muslim and Johnson is actually a given name because he was naturalised and given British citizenship. And so we became Johnson. Now, you uh, studied at Oxford, New College. Was it just presumed that everyone in your family had to go to Oxford? Yes, it was very, rather frowned on when my half-sister Julia went to Cambridge. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean, <laughs> she didn't actually like Cambridge, and I think she went to UCL in the end. Was it an act of rebellion? Yeah. So... <laughs> was always considered rather outré, of course, if one of us then married somebody who hadn't been educated at Oxbridge as well. Yeah. I married someone who went to Oxbridge. My brother Boris married someone who went to Oxbridge. Oh, premier nos. Did colleges matter? Were there strong views on the various colleges? You either went to New, you had to go to New College or Balliol. Right. Those are the options available. <laughs> <laughs> and what pushed you towards New College? Your brother went to Balliol. Well, your brother Boris Because he did. was at Balliol. I wasn't going to go to Balliol. <laughs> He was reading classics at Balliol. I had to do some differentiation. So I went to New College where my uncle Edmund and my grandfather, maternal grandfather, was at New College. Very distinguished. I mean, I don't know enough about, obviously, the process for getting into, into these at that time, but I just wonder, if, if your whole family has a tradition of having to go to Oxford and certain colleges, do you feel a lot of pressure? As in, what if you don't? Or... I was really frightened. I remember waiting to hear whether I'd got in and... I was working as a as a checkout girl in M&S in Marble Arch to get make some money for the Christmas holidays. And I remember sort of shivering in the cold room and kind of sitting at the checkout as these kind of peers of the realm would I would scan their shopping and thinking oh I bet I haven't got in and I remember thinking it was an accident when I had and it must be a mistake. So of course I even though you know all my family went to Oxbridge and my parents met and married at Oxford I thought I had imposter syndrome and I still think it was a mistake, a clerical error that I got in. <laughs> what surprised you about Oxford when you got there? <laughs> Anything? That's a really good question. I have to say I really enjoyed it. I've always felt, partly as a result of quite a complicated childhood, that adult life has been an unexpected bonus and each day I've tried to regard in that spirit 
So when I got to Oxford, I was like, this is unbelievable. This is so great. You know, I've got my own room, even though I have to share a bathroom with all these, you know, spotty, I'm not going to say northern chemists, because that's what t- kind of Toby Young type thing to say. But <laughs> honestly, that when I did my Oxford book, he literally wrote that in, in his chapter on class, I think it was, yeah. at the university. So he, should, he would have been cancelled back then in, in 1986 when I had, did my first book. Had I published that book now, we'd all been cancelled. Me, Boris, Toby Young, Allegra Mostina and Aidan Hartley, all of whom contributed essays, would have been cancelled because it was so un-PC. It's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said that they were stockpiling copies in case Boris ever got to Downing Street a few years ago and then Boris did get to Downing Street and it still didn't need him. Nothing... And nothing interrupted his rise. Next lecture. Um, no, I did enjoy Oxford. I can't remember why. As I mentioned in the introduction, you edited Student Magazine. Um, at that point, did you want to be a journalist? Or was um, it just something you were interested in? I mean, I felt that I committed myself to being a journalist even before then, because as I relate in my book, Rake's Progress, one of the sort of foundational moments of my childhood was when a family friend came and said, what do you want to do when you grow up to me and my brother? I was asked first what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, thinking of all the women I knew, a wife and mother, right? My grandmothers and my mother had four children, you know, very much under the gun domestically. And then this family friend turned to my brother and said, and what do you want to be, Alexander? And he went confidently, world king. And I thought, my goodness, you know, is that an option? Can girls apply? And... When I was next asked what I wanted to be, I suppose a couple of years later, I'd worked it out because I realised that, you know, there was a big world out there and you didn't have to be a wife and mother necessarily, although it was lovely if that happened. So I said, a photojournalist, because of course I'd read Tintin and he was a journalist and we were all completely addicted to Tintin. So that looked like a fun job. And so I've committed myself to that. And also I've never deviated from it. And I'm amazed that I get paid for doing something I enjoy so much. Now, you were the first ever female graduate training at the FT. So how did that come about? And what did the newsroom look like at that time? So when I was doing finals, it was a very different world because the blue chip companies would come, literally come to Oxford and set up stall in the Randolph Hotel and you were sort of asked to do your interviews. And so I remember, I think, being interviewed by Peter Stoddart. I applied for the traineeship on The Times. And I remember going into the Randolph Hotel and there was one other woman. They wanted a man and a woman. And I got down to the last two women, girls. And I walked into the Randolph and Anne McElvoy was sitting on the sofa and she just had her interview. And then I went in and, of course, once you'd seen Anne McElvoy, who spoke German... You know, was unbelievably clever. So I had to do my interview in the wake of Anne McAvoy. So she was chosen as the Times graduate trainee. So I, the only one I left was the FT. So I applied to the FT, thinking this is the last newspaper I should work for because I can't do a percentage. By the way, I still can't. <laughs> and by some absolute fluke, I sort of put on a tweedy, like librarian tweed suit. And I scraped my hair back and I went up to London. I had all these interviews <laughs> by some, again, I think, mistake. They took me and I was there for five years and I met my husband there. I had my first two children there. I thank them very much still for my maternity. 
leave there and the newsroom was very, very white and male. When Emma Tucker arrived the year after, who's now editor of the Sunday Times, we teamed up and we were known as the Black and White Whiskey Show. Do you remember there used to be a, I can't see Fraser's whiskies, but there used to be a whiskey bottle, which is called the Black and White Whiskey (laughs) bottle, which had a black dog and a white dog. And I was sitting in as the white one and she was, and we would just tear around Westminster. We both worked in the Commons, tear around Southwark Bridge, cause complete mayhem. And she, of course, is really, you know, Emma's amazing. She's godmother to my only daughter. So it shows that, you know, they were good pickers when it came to Emma, at least. <laughs> Don't bring yourself down. We, when we had Emily Sheffield on the podcast recently, yeah. she was talking about when she started The Guardian. And she didn't go into full details, but she she said that if she's being completely honest, she did encounter... I mean, you could call it sexism or you could just call it people being a bit dismissive. So someone said to her on the first day, and we know the only reason that you are here is because Alan Rosbridger wants to sleep with you. Did she say that? Yeah. Did you have anything like that? Obviously not in relation to Alan Rosbridger, but I just want to I mean it, because at that time, and I, I think just a little bit after it, it seemed for her at least it was a bit of a hostile environment. Um, or people would presume if you were a woman there, it's for another reason. I think I've benefited from almost reverse sexism. I think the, the FT was looking for a female, a graduate trainee, and I turned up. I think the FT bent over backwards to promote me, maybe even over-promote me. I remember I was the economics reporter and writing the splash most weeks, and I still couldn't do a percentage. And I remember actually thinking that maybe the time was up when I wrote the trade figures up for the FT, and the editor, you know called me over as I was sort of rushing out to a party and he said have you got a minute very courteously and I went yes of course Richard it was Richard Lambert and he said just pop over and so I came over to where he was editing this front page and he said can you just have a look at your report on the trade figures which was the splash okay of the FT about to go international he was literally it was at seven o'clock so I said of course he said just have a quick read and so I read it and I thought every time I read it it just became more and more lucid and impressive And he said, can you see anything wrong? And I said, no. (laughs) And he said, you've put every single figure that should be in billions in millions. (laughs) Can you imagine if I'd gone to Frankfurt and Tokyo? Anyway, so I thought maybe I wasn't... What did you say to him? I said, I'm awfully sorry, sir. I'll go and correct it, kind of thing. But um, I'm trying to think. I think there was a moment in my first year when I was a graduate trainee, you were on a trainee salary. And you started at about 17,000. And I started at the same time as a man called John Thornhill, who's still there. And I remember sort of walking across that bridge with him about a year after we'd started, and, and he said that his salary had been put up. So I stormed into the managing editor's office and I said, John and I are doing exactly the same work, and I thought we were on exactly the same pay. Why have you put his pay up and not mine? And I remember feeling how hard it was to have that conversation as a female, as a woman. It's really hard to ask. And the managing editor said, you're right, this is a this is a discrepancy and I will correct it. But I do feel still in my career, you have to fight for money in a way that men, men enjoy it. It's like going into a pub and having a fight for them. You know, it's kind of what they do. But for us, it's still not in our DNA. And I think it should be. And I encourage my daughter... Whenever she's given a promotion, I say, did you ask for a pay rise? And she, you know, I don't want to go into details, but it's still hard. 
Yeah, I always am just like, thank you for not firing me. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Whenever really appreciate I appreciate I'm still here. <laughs> whenever I get a job, I say to the person, it's always a man, whenever you need to fire me, just go ahead. No hard feelings. We'll still be friends. We can talk about it. No worries if not. <laughs> but so- apart from that, I've never had it. I don't think I've been the victim of any sexism or any sexual harassment. No. Now, you leave the FT and you do various things. And obviously, we only have a limited time on this podcast. Yeah. So maybe you can give us like the show highlights. <laughs> <laughs> no, the lowlights. Because <laughs> you're briefly at the Foreign Office and then you also go to America. And the BBC. And I, yeah, and I want to get to the lady as a separate section. So just in that class, okay. do you want to give us your, your take? So... When you're on the FT, you know that you can cash your chips in once. This is your best chip. You know, yeah. you're at, if you're on the FT, it's like there's no other place like it. It's like if you're at Goldman Sachs or something, you can cash out once. And I sort of probably undersold because I went to, to BBC Radio 4, but I so enjoyed being a radio reporter. And it's actually what I'm doing now as yeah, a bit different, in a different way. And I, I just love doing that. But then, of course, I had so many small children that when my husband was asked to be the bureau chief in Washington for the Sunday Telegraph I with relief I hung up my mic and I went off to Washington and I became a freelancer there then went to Brussels and my husband's always been very good at keeping my nose to the grindstone and he basically said if you want any help we need at least six thousand pounds a month from you to keep the show on the road so you know I never stopped working through having children And at one point when I came back to London from Brussels, I had 12 columns a month in all. Yeah, lots of people do that. But I remember sort of, you know, I had two weekly columns and three monthlies. You know what I mean? And I did now, I had 12. And then 2008, recession hit, and I lost all of them. So then I sort of reinvented myself, especially after I lost my main one, which was the Sunday Times, where I was a weekly columnists were underneath Jeremy above Jeremy Clarkson on the back page of News Review and when that had happened I had this weird call from the editor sorry the publisher of the lady magazine I was lying in bed trying to finish a novel waiting to pick up the children from school and thinking what I was going to write for the Sunday Times that week when I was in short order I was sacked by the Sunday Times having taken this call from this man saying I'm looking for an editor of the lady magazine I thought I was far too busy and grand to consider it. So I immediately passed him on to someone called Rachel Simon, who'd written a book about housekeeping. And he said, no, I don't want Rachel Simon, I want you. And I said, well, I'm on the Sunday Times. But then, of course, I was sacked. And so I was, then I remembered this weird telephone call I'd had. And so I rang him up and I said, are you still looking for an editor of the, the Lady magazine? And he said, yes, I am. Come to tea in uh, Bedford Street, four o'clock next Thursday so I arrived and completely fell in love with the entire place which was then in this Georgian big Georgian stucco fronted building in Covent Garden you know where the office was is very um prime real estate and it looks very um I don't I always think the spectator office is how people imagine it to be and I think the lady magazine office back then was how you imagined it to be it's just lovely I mean it was sort of cream and gold and everything was sort of woodwork and I remember the sort of perks of office, which is so adorable. I remember I had my own office and I was allowed to redecorate it. And every day this woman would come in, I think it was Roz, and she would hand me very formally two freshly laundered tea towels as if I would need to mop myself off at regular intervals, such were the pressures of the deadlines. (laughs) But it was just the most wonderful job. And 
of course, I, I went in, as you do as a Johnson, with a Channel 4 TV crew to document my arrival, which turned into an infamous documentary, almost led to my dismissal. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because <laughs> I think that it's fair to say that your time as editor of the Lady Magazine it made plenty of column inches <laughs> outside of the Lady Magazine. Yeah. Uh, so, so what do you think were the points where you eventually obviously clashed with the proprietor what were the main clashing points and would you change anything if you could go back well it's a long story but the mother mrs budworth was the mother of five sons and one of them ben had come and to take over the running of the lady and so really the clash was also between ben and his mother because she's very old-fashioned and she wanted the lady to continue and when i arrived she said the three rules are no sex, no politics, and no celebrities ever in the Lady magazine. And when I opened the file that had the sort of features that were going to run in the next edition, there was something on woodland walks. They were called things like tasty treats and woodland walks and have you got macular degenerate, you know. And I thought, we've, you know, how am I going to spice this up a bit? <laughs> so, of course, I started commissioning features from... I remember the first feature I commissioned was Charlie Glass, How to Bed the Nanny. I mean, it was good. Of course they all went bonkers. <laughs> I mean, again, that wouldn't be possible these days, but everyone read How to Bed the Nanny avidly. Guess attention. Guess we were talking. <laughs> I also did a piece... My father wrote a piece about his gallbladder operation, which Mrs. Bloodworth also objected to. But I remember the worst thing I did was... Tracy Emin. I, I did an interview with Tracy Emin. And even though I'd said in my interview, which was a formal interview in the boardroom with Mrs. Budworth present, and I'd been warned that she, she, one woman she couldn't abide was Tracy Emin. As, and so in, literally in order to provoke her, I did an interview with Tracy Emin, put her on the cover, in which Tracy Emin said that needlework was a substitute for masturbation for women. So basically, I was away when this cover story came out in Sicily, and Ben Budworth rang me up and he went, you know, we've got a problem, Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> and he said, you've got to take it out about masturbation. And I dug in and I insisted it went in. <laughs> so the writing was on the wall. Yeah. How quickly from that cover going to press, hitting straws, did things unravel? <laughs> well, I mean, I was there for two or three years in the end. They kicked me upstairs, which is very boring. I think nobody should ever be kicked upstairs. It's like... So you do less hands-on editing or you should you just go yeah. I think you should just say pay me off I will go I mean so what is Paul Dacre actually doing at Associated you know just go because it, you know nobody wants to see you around the place if you're not in charge anymore now you've written several books and uh, you mentioned obviously your most recent but I wondered has your writing I mean I presume the answer is yes has your writing at times got you into trouble you wrote Notting Hell you also that was live... a novel, though, so you can hardly yes. be punished for writing a novel. Well, people say you can't be punished for writing a novel, but I know plenty of people have written novels that has made them fall out with people. So I just want to someone who lives in Notting Hill, sending yeah. up Notting Hill, does that have any kickback from neighbours or does everyone take it in good stead? I think at the time people, people loved to get on their high horse. I remember sort of purple-faced men would rush up to me in the butchers in Lydgate's very expensive and say, how dare you put me in your novel? And I had no idea who they were. So all that did was confirm me that I had written up brilliantly the different types of Notting Hill 
So yes, I had the sort of yummy mummy, the miserable banker's wife, the kind of hedgy, the sort of predatory hedgy, the billionaire. And I wrote it from the my perspective, which is of a, an outsider in the middle of really super rich Notting Hill, when everybody seemed to have millions. I remember turning to a banker at a dinner party and saying to him, I think my husband, I just had given birth in St Mary's, and I said, why are you on 13 million and the senior registrar who delivered my child on sort of 13,000? And he said, because I'm the David Beckham of the financial world. And all these men thought they were David Beckham, basically, when it came to finance. And, of course, we had the crash. Proved that they weren't David Beckham. They were probably Bernie Madoff. Mel, these days you are writing your novels. You also have your LBC show. But before we get there, you had a brief foray into politics. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, can I show you my Change UK tattoo? Have you got one? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> that would be a great scoop for this podcast. That would show table talk. <laughs> oh my God, can you imagine if I'd had a Change UK tattoo? Yeah. It's like tattooing the name of your boyfriend and then he dumps you. Yeah, how did you find politics? I mean, both your brother... Not for me. Uh, not both you. I mean, you, Joe Johnson and also obviously Boris Johnson are both in politics. So did you look at what they were doing and think, maybe it's in my blood? What made you decide to go that way? <laughs> A total rush of blood. I literally... I got an email from Change UK saying, would you like to become a candidate for the European elections? And I thought, I was in Jamaica and I remember thinking, why not? <laughs> and also I did... I mean... I, I know the spectator takes a different line, but I do think Brexit is a really, really stupid thing to do. And after however many years, let's say five years now, we've been talking about leaving the EU, I still can't see a single advantage or upside. And nobody has ever persuaded me of one. So I just thought, you know, I've got to put a marker down. I've got to... I can't just snipe from the sidelines, to use a much well-worn PMQ's phrase. You've got to put your money where your mouth is sometimes and for once in my life I did it was a catastrophe (laughs) yeah the votes didn't exactly (laughs) flock I got 46,000 votes in the southwest yep and Widdicombe who was my Brexit party opponent probably got I don't know let's google it now yes 700,000 get that research (laughs) so You know, I think we did better than the UKIP party over across the board. That's something, isn't it? I find it interesting, actually. I mean, clearly Michael Gove's a former journalist, your brother's a former journalist. But yeah, I often think the characteristics that make someone a good journalist, so perhaps being frank, (laughs) are not ones that make people good politicians. Make really bad politicians. Because also you feel you have to be entertaining. and that's You don't want to give a bad interview if you have to do interviews. Exactly. And you don't want to stand up on your hind legs in the common and be boring. But so much of politics is simply repeating core messages and repeating sound bites. And you just think to yourself, how can they bear to do it? How can they stand up and say hands, face, space all the time? <laughs> yeah. When, I mean, you can see it just... Your your lifeblood must drain away. Do you have more respect now for your brother's careers paths? Huge. Having done it? I hope people read my book because I do pay tribute to all politicians who get out there, rain or shine. There's no such thing as a weekend. There's really no such thing as an evening. And everybody treats you as if you are a piece of SH1T. 
and you're trying to rob them and they blame you for everything. You get a huge amount of hate on social media. I take my hat off to them to do what they do. Because someone's, it's incredibly hard governing the country. Someone's got to do it. And it really is a tough job, especially now. Now, I'm going to end with some quick yeah. questions on the present day, but just final one, I, I just wondered, you're very self-deprecating. That's what I genuinely think, actually. <laughs> but I, don't, I mean, just you've been talking about your journalism career. You're, you know, you obviously were very talented because you got to these places, but you often suggest it's a fluke. I mean, do you think having family members who have been very successful it means that you judge yourself more harshly? Well, if you if you think the metric of your family is that your closest sibling is prime minister, by that metric, you are a failure. But I'm immensely proud of him. And I think he's under impossible circumstances. He's doing his absolute best and he's working around the clock. I don't think I am a failure. I have not. It's fine. I, I don't want to compare myself with him. Yeah. We do things very differently. And I never wanted to be world king. I just think you should be proud about your journalism. <laughs> I, I, I am proud of it. But the thing is, I'm so self-deprecated. Often I read a piece I might have written two weeks ago and think I could never do that now. <laughs> it's so odd. A few final things. We talked about lockdown earlier. How are you finding the lockdown rules? You mentioned, you know, if no, we're currently seeing a lot of people not necessarily doing them. Some perhaps related to you, but also just generally everyone in the paper. Jeremy Corbyn, others. Do you, do you think it's getting to the point now where it's just, I mean, if you look at the data on adherence to the rules, do you think it's hard to have that kind of public morale if you feel no one else is doing it? I think in on the whole, people are very observant and it's, I think nobody's perfect. It's hard for everybody. I do try to observe the rules. Hard to know what they are sometimes when you're inside and outside and what's your household and how do you define it and what's work and what's essential and all those things. And I, I tend to believe, and I've said this before, that it might work better to have a Swedish approach, which is, you know, rely on people's to be sensible, take their own individual decisions. I think we might have to come to that point. If it seems too many people in the public eye just don't get it and are giving the wrong signal. Don't take photos when you no. have a dinner of nine, as Jeremy Corbyn has learnt. Who is he? What an idiot. <laughs> Who was it taking the picture? I want to know that, That's yeah. The big because one. also when you look at the photo, you can kind of see half of them have realised it's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's like, they've uh... stopped smiling and the other half of but it's too late to stop it. <laughs> Who on earth took that photograph? No, I mean it's we're we're pretty good. Despite appearances, we're pretty good. Now, we have Ziggy in today, so I thought it would be good just to, you know, Dylan the dog's obviously the most famous one. Has Ziggy befriended Dylan the dog? <laughs> I think, yes, I think, well, you know, you might, they've almost had intimate relations. <laughs> Dylan's very cute. Now, the final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast, which is just, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Recently, I think I mentioned just before recording, Emily Sheffield thought it was the worst advice she'd have given anyone. Mm. So we do, we are now allowed both options. <laughs> you can interpret as you like. Oh, goodness. I do remember my mother, and I think she denies saying this because she's a sort of so liberal and, and very alternative, my mother you know, very beatnik artist. I do remember her saying two things to me. And I think it's debatable whether this is really, really good advice or really, really bad advice. And the first thing she said to me was when I was on the FT and I'd just been promoted to the economics room and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm writing, this, you know, <laughs> I write about 
inflation for the FT, thinking how grand I was. And she said, it's all very well having a career, darling, but don't forget about a husband and babies. I looked at her with utter horror because it hadn't occurred to me that I would have to have a husband or babies because I was in my mid-twenties and, you know, that seemed to me somewhere over the horizon. And when I did get a husband and babies, not necessarily in that order, I remember her saying, and she also denied, she said this, darling, never refuse your husband. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, are you kidding me? I sort of thought again. <laughs> you saying this? So I, let's not even go into what you get up. You know, it sounded so Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. But, you know, 30 years on, was that good advice or was it bad advice? I leave that to the listener to decide. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> thank you, Rachel, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.